Welcome to the analysis.news. I'm Greg Wilpert. Today we're going to take a truly big picture look at the state of the world based on two recently released books by the sociologist William I. Robinson. The two books are called Global Civil War, Capitalism Post-Pandemic, published earlier this year by PM Press, and the other is Can Global Capitalism Endure, published by Clarity Press uh, just very recently. The two books overlap to some extent, which is why we will discuss them together. They provide an overview of the state of global capitalism, the multiple crises that it is uh, causing, and uh, its origins, its consequences, and the resistance to it. William I. Robinson is Distinguished Professor of Sociology and, global and International Studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. He is the author of numerous books on Latin America and on globalization, such as The Global Police State, A Theory of Global uh, Capitalism, among many others. Uh, thanks for joining me today, William. Thank you so much, Greg, for having me on. It's a pleasure. I find it uh, actually a little bit tricky to discuss your books sometimes because um, uh, they analyze global capitalism as a system. And whenever you look at something from a systemic or holistic perspective, you quickly find that to understand any of the elements of a system, you need to understand the other elements too in order for it all to make sense and how it fits together. But having said that, uh, and uh, we'll see a little bit how this works, um, Let's start with the way, uh, the way place you start uh, both of your recently book, uh, released books. Uh, that is uh, with the explanation of, of the global uh, structural crisis that ca capitalism currently finds itself in. You characterize this crisis as a crisis of overaccumulation and stagnation, among other things, of course. Um, but uh, just, you know, if we look at that uh, overaccumulation and stagnation, to some extent, that is kind of uh, the explanation that many Marxists would actually give for a typical cyclical crisis in capitalism. So then uh, how is it that this time around uh, you would say that it is a structural crisis and um, why did it begin, which you say in your book in 2008? Sure. Well, well, first, let me say that it is, a, it is a deep, deep structural crisis of global capitalism. But just as you pointed out in the introduction, we can't separate that structural dimension from the other dimensions of crisis. It's also a political crisis of state legitimacy and of capitalist hegemony. It's a social crisis of social reproduction in the sense that at this point, 80% of humanity faces a daily struggle for survival. And that survival is not even certain. And of course, it's an ecological crisis crisis. And so all of these four dimensions are intertwined, but you're asking about the um, structural dimension. And we speak in radical political economy, we speak about three types of crises. You just mentioned the first one, which is cyclical. These are periodic recessions. They come about every 10 years, almost like clockwork. Since we've had uh, data going back to the early 1820s, we see every 10 years or so, there's a this cyclical crisis. And in fact, we're on the verge right now, we actually are, by definition, in recession in the United States and worldwide as a cyclical crisis. But yes, I'm talking about something much deeper, which I refer to as a structural crisis, meaning that the only way out of this crisis is to radically restructure how capitalism is organized. And so these are types of crises that we see every 40 to 50 years. So the last big structural crisis was the 1970s. And that was resolved. And when I say resolved, I don't mean resolved for the majority of humanity, but resolved for the, for the system through globalization, through capitalist globalization and the neoliberal counter-revolution. Prior to that, we had this big structural crisis of the 1930s that was resolved by 
a switch to welfare capitalism, New Deal capitalism, social democratic capitalism. And I'll just take us back to one more historic period. The, the previous to that, the giant structural crisis was the late 1870s to the early 1890s. That was actually the first Great Depression. And that structural crisis was resolved by a new wave of colonialism and imperialism. And of course, late in that century or early in the new century, uh, Vladimir Lenin writes his famous book, um, Imperialism, the Latest Stage of of capitalism. So we have these bigger crises, which are structural for every 40 to 50 years. And, the, and each time the system has managed to survive and move forward by radical restructuring. And I'm suggesting that the new structural crisis begins with the financial collapse of 2008. We are still in it. It hasn't been resolved at all. And of course, part of the argument in both of these books, but especially the first of them, the global civil war, is that the ruling groups are hoping that digitalization, this radical new round of digital transformation will lift the global capitalist economy out of structural crisis. But I do want to conclude with one other point here, and that is that there's a third type of crisis that I characterize as systemic. And what I mean by that is that even if you restructure the system, you won't get out of this crisis. And so the only way to resolve this crisis for humanity is to move beyond the system itself. That is to move beyond capitalism. And you've, of course, read both books in preparation for this interview. And you know that I'm arguing that within within global capitalism, there could be a radical restructuring that prolongs the life of the system for a number of decades. But that ultimately, and certainly by the end of this century, uh, either we will have overthrown capitalism or we will face complete collapse and the demise of civilization. Now, one of the components of this crisis uh, that you mentioned of uh, the structural crisis is uh, the predominant role that uh, <clears throat> that financial ca uh, capital has come to play, um, and that it's really something that's parasitic on the on the real economy, uh, which actually reminds me also of a term that I think it was Matt Taibbi once used to describe Goldman Sachs as the vampire squid on the face of humanity. Um, so, um, can you just talk a little bit about how um, finance capital fits into this and why is it um, parasitic on the real economy? Sure. Fantastic question and really important because this gets to the very heart of what's going on in the global economy and in this crisis. So, there's two things we want to think about here. The first is that the logic of capitalism is that investment is going to take place where you're going to assume there's going to be a good profit. And so capitalists will invest in the productive economy. That is the real economy of goods and services in houses and in computers and in healthcare and education and, and food and so forth. They will invest in those things, not because they meet social or human needs, but because they're going to be profitable. And so we've had, since the late 1980s, we've had a secular decline in the rate of profit. Now, this is hardcore Marxist economy that, by definition, as capitalism develops, the profit, there's a ten, the technical term, is a tendency for the rate of profit to fall. And we know why it falls. And this is linked also to the issue of digitalization. Um, but I'll come back to that in just a minute, digitalization. But we have documented, and of course, it's mentioned in the second of those two books, uh, Can Global Capitalism Endure?, that the rate of profit was 15% in the 1970s, that um, that went down to 10% in the, by the turn of the century, and then 6% currently. That is in the productive economy. So if you're a capitalist, you're not going to invest in the real economy. So what are you going to do? You accumulate all of this capital and you don't have where to invest it. You've, that's 
and that's what we call it an overaccumulation crisis. You've accumulated all this capital and it becomes stagnant because you won't reinvest it in, in productive reactivation because you won't anticipate a good profit. So this is where financial speculation comes in, that the transnational capitalist class has accumulated enormous amounts of capital, of cash, and they are investing, have been investing it for the last especially since 2008, but even before then, in the global casino, in financial speculation of every single type. And the uh, data, which is so revealing that I mentioned in both of the books, is that the real economy of goods and services, upon which we all depend and we all live in that economy, is valued worldwide at $75 trillion annually. Whereas financial speculation, just in derivatives, and a derivative is a financial speculative instrument of financial speculation, is one quadrillion dollars. So it's unfathomable, this gap between the real economy in which we live and the financial speculation. So that's one part of my response to your question. The other thing I want to say here is that um, there's three things that are driving forward the crisis and also driving forward everything taking place in the world. This triple process of globalization, financialization, and digitalization. So part of the transformations of the in recent decades, and again, especially since 2008, I want to keep on emphasizing that, because during deep structural crises, things change and develop very rapidly. And very often, uh, we can't even keep up our analysis with how quickly things are changing. But what's happened is that finance post-2008 is in a whole new ballpark. I'm not even, I'm a sociologist, but I think even the best Marxist economists or mainstream economists can't even get their minds around this financialization. This one is this enormous gulf between financial speculation and the accumulation of what we call fictitious capital and the real economy. So I know I'm going into a little technical detail, but so what I mean by fictitious capital is that you print money, but that capital is not backed by real goods and services in the real economy. Um, so I gave that example of, um, the, you know, real goods and services and just derivatives as fictitious capital. But what's happened here is with the 2008 financial collapse, we moved into a period uh, called quantitative easing in which the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve, the Treasury and the other leading industrialized countries in Western Europe just started printing massive amounts of money to state to uh, to respond to the crisis and the collapse and just threw that money out there, delivering it to banks and corporations. And what did the banks and corporations do, this program of quantitative easing? Because here we're talking about uh, the U.S. government spent about $15 trillion after 2008 in quantitative easing, just printing money and throwing it out. Worldwide, there's some $35 trillion. That's almost half of the whole global economy and this money that's not backed by real goods and services. So they delivered it to the banks. And what did the banks do? They, you know, it's delivering it to the transnational capitalist class. They didn't invest it in productive reactivation. They invested it in more and more financial speculation. And then with COVID, you have a new round of several tens of trillions of dollars worldwide just printing money and throwing it out there. That's part of the story of stagflation that we're facing right now, stagnation together with, with um, inflation. But I want to conclude my response. And again, you know, we could spend the whole hour just on this issue of financialization. There is something else going on. And it is that um, once you get extreme, this extreme digitalization and all the national financial systems in the world are integrated into a single global financial system and through computerization and digitalization, finance 
can zip around the world. Any, it can land in one place for a second, relocate to another place, combine, disintegrate, then recombine. So finance just detaches itself in a way we've never seen in the 500-year history of capitalism. It's completely detached from the real economy. So we're in a new ball game here. We can barely get our, our grip uh, around it. Now I can continue talking, but I think for the moment I'll just pause uh, pause with that. Yeah, I want to touch on two things that uh, that you mentioned in, just now. Um, one of the the main one really being uh, the role of the pandemic. I mean, first of all, uh, you say that uh, this uh, structural crisis basically had its uh, start, so to speak, in the uh, 2008 global financial crisis, but it lasts until now, until the present day. That's that's about 14 years, actually. So that's a pretty long time to be stuck into in a crisis. And of course, in that time period, we even had some economic growth. So um, I, I just, uh, if you, I just want you to maybe clarify exactly why, even in a period of growth, you would characterize this as being still in uh, being in a crisis uh, of sort, uh, uh, well, in a structural crisis. Uh, and the other thing, question is, you know, how is the pandemic affecting uh, these dynamics of financialization? Well, you mentioned already that uh, it, you know provoked a huge new inflow of cash through quantitative easing. But um, then there's also the digital component, if you could talk about that, how that has uh, impacted it. Sure. And that's an integral part of the, the whole story here. But we want to remember something. Let's go back for, in, for a moment to the last two structural crises. So really, the key turning point is 1972 and the previous one. Um, in the, I mean, the, the 71 and 72, those years, Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard. Um, and, you know, it was a collapse of the gold standard. And I mean, he did that because the economy was entering into a period of stagnation and there were other things going on. I won't go into here. But really, the global economy, then then it's throughout the entire 1970s that there's this structural crisis. You might have a spurt of growth and then you have stagnation and then you have a little recession. But the larger structural story goes from 71, 72 right up until the mid-1980s when you start having the globalization boom of the late 1980s and the 1990s. So, And then prior to that, in the 1930s, remember, there's the the, the, the stock market collapses in 1929, and the, the world doesn't get out of that structural crisis until World War II, when it's actually eventually just the war which eventually resolves that structural crisis. So it's not surprising to say that we're, we've been 14 years in this uh, structural, um, in a structural uh, crisis. That's not that's not unusual. And again, we've seen historically that the structural crisis is resolved by a radical restructuring of the system. So it functions in new ways. It has new institutional mechanisms uh, and and so forth. And we haven't uh, um, gotten there. But let's talk about the pandemic for a minute. There's uh, that's a big theme of the first of the two books. The one that's a few months ago it came out: Global Civil War, Capitalism Post uh, Pandemic. And there's a number of things going on with the pandemic, but let's focus. I hope we'll get into the discussion on the global revolt and, and all of that. But the economic side of the pandemic is that these new technologies really start to come online in the 2010s. And here we're talking about, um, I mean, they're absolutely these radical new technologies. Some people call it the fourth industrial revolution or the second uh, information age. Here we're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning, big data, the collection, processing, analysis of massive amounts of data, every single thing taking place on the planet. We're talking about robotization, 3D printing, autonomously driven land, air and sea vehicles, a virtual reality and augmented reality, new forms of you know, energy storage. Um, nanotechnology, biotechnology, that played a key role in the pandemic. 
quantum and cloud computing. Um, and this goes on and on, right? All of these new tech technologies and the technologies start to be introduced in the 2010s, but it's really the pandemic that turbocharged the introduction and the expansion of these new technologies. I mean, think of how we suddenly, as a professor, we're suddenly teaching online through uh, Zoom. But think also of the vaccines. As controversial as this technology, you know, the vaccine technology is, um, you know, that's the fruit of biotechnology, radical new, you know, biotechnology developments in biotechnology, um, uh, and so forth. So really the pandemic turbocharges this radical digital restructuring. And that has also political and social dimensions. And, you know, one of the things that I'm emphasizing in both of the books, especially the first of those two, is how it um, placed on center stage a new block of transnational capital. So because um, Silicon Valley moves now to the center, Silicon Valley, uh, metaphorically, because there's different Silicon Valleys around the world, but the big tech companies move to the very core of the global economy, and they are fused with the global financial conglomerates, which invest in them, provide credit, et cetera. And it's also fused with the military industrial complex. So I've developed in both of these books this argument. You have a triangle, triangulated new block of capital, right? The military industrial capital. So the Pentagon, Wall Street, Silicon Valley all come together. And all of that is around the pandemic and the response to the pandemic. Now, I'll throw this out for a minute. Um, and you can decide if we go in that direction or we would rather continue to elaborate on the structural dimension of a crisis. But remember that part of this whole story of crisis is a crisis of social of social disintegration and a crisis of survival. And we've spoken about this the last time you interviewed me, Greg, that in um, as we speak, 1% of humanity controls over 52% of, 50, 52% of the world's wealth, 20% of humanity, and that's decreasing that 20% lot lower, it's bigger, less percentage, controls 95% of the world's wealth. So 80% of humanity has to make do with just 5% of the world's wealth. And under these conditions of extreme inequality, that generates enormous social and political tensions, and it is fueling this massive global revolt, which is simply unprecedented. For that book, Global Civil War, I went into detail on, you know, on, um, on this global revolt. The reason I'm mentioning that is because the ruling classes, therefore, have a dual challenge. The one challenge is how do you respond to chronic stagnation, even when you have spurts of growth, as you mentioned. The long-term trend is stagnation. So how do you respond to that economically, structurally, and keep profit-making going? But the second big challenge that the ruling groups have is how do you maintain transnational social control? How do you keep a lid on this global revolt? And it's there where the digital technologies also come into play. Because my prior book, which you interviewed me on a few years back, The Global Police State, is, is showed how these technologies are applied to systems of warfare, social control, and repression around the world, and really bringing us to this global police state. So we wouldn't have this, you know, acute global police state without these new technologies uh, that make it possible. I want to get uh, clear off. Of course, I definitely want to get into the issue of the legitimation crisis uh, and what it's where it's coming from, where it's going. But before we do that, uh, there's another crucial element to your approach, which is um, to basically uh, question or not even question to basically undermine the idea that there is a um, uh, there are different uh, capitalist classes, national capitalist classes fighting it out against each other, which is kind of a common way of seeing the world, especially when you look at the 
conflicts, you know, that you see between uh, the U.S. and China, let's say U.S. and Russia, uh, you know, it looks like uh, the U.S. is fighting for U.S. capital and China is fighting for Chinese capital and Russia is fighting for Russia, etc. Um, but uh, one of the, your main arguments is that actually there is a an integrated transnational capitalist class. Um, and um, now, where's the evidence for that? And um, and then we'll get into well, later on into uh, kind of uh, how how that then uh, plays itself out in in these uh, war and peace uh, issues. But but first, you know, where's you know where's the evidence for this uh, right. integrated transnational sure. capital class? Question. Okay, so I, I'm going to flip around the question. The question should be: Where is the evidence that capital is still organized nationally? And there is no evidence. That's the simple answer. So let me say that these new books, of course, dealing with the crisis and the pandemic and this new round of digitalization. Um, but prior to that, I've been writing about globalization and developing the theory of global capitalism since the really since the late 1990s. And in my earlier books, I, I've massively presented massive overwhelming evidence of how the leading sectors of capital all around the world have transnationally integrated. They've transnationally cross-invested, cross-penetrated, so that you really can't separate out all of this, the big chunks of transnational capital into these national boxes. And my critics, and I have more critics, I have a lot of people that support us and research in this area, but my critics are probably more numerous. And if you look at across the board, across the board, their criticism is just in theoretically in the air. They say, that's not true. And Lenin said this 100 years ago, etc. And they've never, never presented counter evidence to show that the giant transnational corporations and financial conglomerates that drive the whole global economy, that lie behind political power everywhere, right? That they are still organized into national boxes. On the contrary, I've shown the reverse. Even in global civil war, not the other one, the other, the new one, global, can global capitalism endure? I just cite the earlier works. But even there, I've shown it. You know, I've shown it in, in actual hardcore systematic evidence. Now, I'm a social scientist. No social scientist can make a knowledge claim without having it backed by empirical evidence. But not just social scientists, journalists, I mean, anyone thinking about the world. You, I can tell you that the clouds look to me like, like um, cotton floating in the air. But empirical evidence tells us that it's water vapor. So here it could, might look to us on the surface that there's national capitalists competing with one another, but we have to dig up the empirical evidence and we see that it is actually transnational capital and the level of integration is phenomenal, unprecedented in the 21st century. So that does lead to the question, then how do we explain the new Cold War? How do we explain US-China rivalry? That's real. That's not fake. That rivalry is real, it's dangerous, it could lead us towards World War III, but it has other explanations not the explanation that there's a Chinese capital and U.S. capital and they're competing for markets and, you know, and influence around the world. That is empirically 100% false. I don't know if you'd like me to get into then how do we do we explain these conflicts? Yeah, I definitely do. Um, but uh, before that, I, um, one of the interesting points I thought that you make is uh, that you do say that there is still uh, competition bet uh, within the TCC that transnational capitalist class, which I find uh, an important point to make because many of your critics will uh, skip over that and will just look at, oh, you know, the, this integration and the lack of uh, supposed uh, lack of uh, competition. But uh, th then you make the further point that, uh, but they are united, that is the transnational capitalist class is united in its interest in keeping neoliberalism uh, and uh, keeping the basically the capitalist system with open markets, etc. in place. Now, this, of course, um, 
raises the other issue then, you know, what role then does, uh, and this comes also later on to the question of the global revolt, but first, uh, what role does the national state still play in all of this? Uh, in, you know, and why even bother with national states in that sense? Sure. So, so right. The first thing is that there's, I've always emphasized this. Again, you know, I'm, I know this is kind of extraneous to the interview, but my critics, my severe critics, they never respond to when I, not just when I show the evidence, but I respond to their criticism. And then they continue with the same criticism. So endlessly, I've, it's been said that I think the nation state has ended. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. Endlessly, they say that I claim there's a monolithic transnational capitalist class that agrees on everything. I've never said anything of the sort. In fact, I've always emphasized that there's um, complete disunity, fissures, competition, rivalry, conflict within the ranks of transnational capital, the transnational capitalist class. And just as you pointed out, there's only two points of unity. One point of unity is the transnational capitalist class is united around wanting an open global economy where they can have access to the world's resources and ex exploitation of labor. And the other point of unity is they want social control and repression to contain the popular and the working classes. Beyond that, there's no unity. So one of the things that's intrinsic to capitalism, it's what makes capitalism capitalism, is competition among capitals. So that competition is fierce. It's all over the world. But it's transnational clusters competing with other transnational uh, clusters. That's what we see when we look at capitalist competition uh, around the world. But now you're asking really the key question, how do states fit in here? So we have a contradiction in the in global capitalism, that we have a globalizing economy and globalizing capital, which is integrating across borders. But this unfolds within a nation state based system of political authority. So you have these 200 nation states and each nation, national, each government, each national state, like the US state, the Chinese state, the Russian state, the Brazilian state, besides the fact that they have a certain political autonomy, even while their capitals are transnationalizing, they have a political autonomy. The nation state, it's a little theoretical, but it's important, has a contradictory mandate. So if you're the U.S. nation state or those that govern and control the U.S. nation state, you have to attract transnational capital to your territory. You have to have investment take place. You have to have economically inside your borders. You have to stimulate economic growth and capital accumulation, right? That's your accumulation function as a state. Your other function is to achieve legit social, uh, legitimacy. Your legitimation, legitimation function. You have to achieve internal legitimacy and harmony and keep a lid on revolt or revolution and guarantee that at least enough of the population is able to reproduce itself for society not to collapse. And that legitimacy function of the state is in contradiction with the accumulation function. That sounds technical, but I simply mean this, that if you're the U.S. state or whatever state you are, you have to um, reduce salaries you have to make the workers competitive by pushing their salaries down and precarious work. You have to give tax breaks. You have to give lift environmental regulations. You have to do all these things to please capital so they will invest in your national territory and accumulate inside your national territory. By doing all of those things, you heighten inequality, you heighten precariousness, you heighten struggles for survival among the masses, and therefore you aggravate the legitimacy crisis. So part of the story here is that states have to externalize this internal or domestic political tensions and crises. Now you externalize them in two different ways among others. One, you externalize it into, ex you create external enemies when there are none. So you really see the US state doing this. First it was, you know, um, terrorism is the external enemy to channel, channel all of that internal tensions. 
Then it was, um, don't even know what came after terrorism. That's eventually didn't do the trick. And now it's China, the boogeyman of China and Russia and Putin. There's always some external enemy that's conjured up. During the Cold War, it was the threat of communism. Right. So you you externalize those um, those tensions. The other big way that you try and resolve those those internal tensions is by scapegoating. So, of course, you have Trump with this, you know, scapegoating of immigrants who are rapists and, and murderers, etc. Um, that's the role of racism and many different forms of, of scapegoating. But in any in any way, just to summarize and going into a lot of detail here is that there are numerous ways to analyze what is driving this intense interstate competition that are not in contradiction with the empirical evidence that shows that it is not national corporations in the U.S. in competition with national corporations in other countries. Hmm. That brings us to the next issue, which is uh, the global revolts that had been taking place really in the wake of the 2008 uh, crisis and also just before the pandemic. Um, talk about those. I mean, uh, what, how do you see, um, what were they reacting to exactly? I mean, you mentioned some of the elements already and what was the, uh, uh, the, how did the, the national state and also global capital react to, uh, respond to those challenges? So obviously, as long as there's inequality, um, inequality, there's always going to be um, um, uh, revolt from below. I mean, over 500 years, well, 8,000 years of class society. But let's start the story with 2008. The financial collapse of 2008 really heightened the um, struggle for daily survival of the vast majority of humanity. And so after 2008, you get Occupy Wall Street in the United States um, and you and, and other mass movements in the United States, this burst of struggles. Um, but you get all over the world, the, really the global revolt, you get the Arab Spring, you get in, in, a new round of turns to the left in Latin, you know, in Latin America, you get uprisings in, in Thailand, all, all over the world, right after 2008. It's a period of mass struggle. And then it dies down a little bit. But when you look throughout the whole 2000 teens, it never disappears. It's actually still increasing and increasing. Let me just grab, as I'm talking, a piece of paper here with some actual data. It's hard to memorize actual, you know, all of this data. But um, so I, I won't be able to find it now. But the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace has what they call a global protest tracker. And they show that the, 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 both the intensity and the, you know, the widespread protests are throughout the 2000 teens, they're escalating. And they reach a climax from 2017 to 2019, in which there's, a, again, I don't have the, the data is right in the two books, but something like 250 mass uprisings all around the world that overthrew no less than 35 governments in this period, 2017 to 2019. Now, let's go back to fall of 2019 and remember what was happening. The global revolted, like even took off more than it had been. You had a million people in the streets in Chile. That's what brought the left to power two years later in elections or three years later. You had mass strikes and mass uprisings throughout Latin America, Colombia, Ecuador, everywhere where you went. But then you have it in the Sudan, you have it in Lebanon, you have it in Iraq, you have it in Thailand, you have it everywhere you looked in the fall of 2019. I call that in the book, the People's Spring of 2000, fall 2019. The only reason, it, and I want to mention India as a case example in just a second, the only reason it was temporarily put on hold is because of the pandemic. The pandemic is a blessing in disguise for the ruling groups in two respects. The repo market, which is basically a a crisis of debt and stagnation. I'm not going to run into technicalities of what the repo market is. That was about to crash in August, September, October of 2019. Like we were headed for another 2008. 
So the blessing in disguise of the pandemic was suddenly you have the state with a new round of quantitative easing of printing trillions and trillions of dollars and preventing a collapse. That was the one blessing in disguise. But the other one is when you declare all over the world the lockdown, suddenly everyone had to leave the streets. And if they were out in the streets, you have states used to legitimate repression that is in the interests of public health. So that was squashed momentarily, but even then the global revolt didn't stop. Now I want to give the, just like few months, just for a few months, it went on hold. Then, of course, George Floyd's murdered, you know, here in the United States. And then you had May, June, July, you had the biggest uprising in the entire history of the United States. And then even in the midst of the pandemic, it once again continues the global result. I want to mention the case of India because it is stunning. In 2000, December 2019 to January 2020, literally the eve of the pandemic, there's a general strike in India of 150 million people. Now, think that through. The vast majority of countries in the world, that's more than their entire population. This was the biggest labor mobilization in the history of the planet. So that dies down, and then there's a giant lockdown. And by the way, the, I discussed it in Global Civil War, the incredible repression of states, by states, of the popular movements and the uprisings and the working classes in the name of pu the public health. Uh, okay, then fast forward one year later. December 2020 to January 2021, another general strike in India, this time involving 250 million people. This blows your mind away. 200, that would then surpass the other one as the biggest labor popular mobilization in the history of the planet. So this gives you an idea of dimensions of this global revolt. I title the book Global Civil War because I don't liter obviously don't literally mean that um, there is a military on one side and you know from above and a military on the other side from below fighting a, a military civil war. But it's a, it's obviously, you know, a, a metaphor for a larger story here in which all of these national struggles in the age of digitalized global capitalism and social media, et cetera, we're aware of all of these national struggles. There's increasing, you know, intersection of all these different national and regional struggles, which we can talk about later. And so the global working class, with all its diversity, right, is squaring off against the transnational capitalist class and the states and ruling groups on the other side. And so we really are moving towards, you know, a situation of global civil war in the sense that prolonged permanent now conflict from below and from above manifesting it in so many different ways. Um, and I'll just conclude with one other point here. Of course, all of this mass discontent is being in the, there's the left and the popular groups are, you know, are organizing social movements, popular social movements organizing you know, and organizing this discontent into protest. But there's also the fascist right and the far right, which is similarly taking advantage of this crisis and this immiseration and this insecurity to also try and organize a mass base, a fascist base. And that, of course, is a big danger that I discuss in both of these books. Hmm. Yeah, I want to get to that point as well. But um, just staying a little bit more on the topic on the on the uh, existing revolts uh, that had been happening, especially the ones that are more, uh, how should I say, uh, I guess, progressive, for lack of a better term. Um, there seems to be two major problems that they had, or maybe even three I can think of, and I think you talk about some of them. One of them is, uh, first of all, the um, well, the repression, of course, that happens against them to try to stop them. 
Um, but then there's also uh, problems internal to the movements, it seems. I mean, if you compare, uh, you know, the 1930s, where you also had lots of uh, protest movements, it was quite different for two reasons, uh, which seem to be lacking in the current uprisings. And one is that they were organized in the sense that you had a massive union movement um, that gave it coherence. You also had massive uh, socialist parties organized. And that leads to the other point, which is also that they had much more of a political um, direction and vision uh, than the current ones, which is more of a kind of inarticulate protest, it seems. Um, I'm just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, about why these uh, current movements are uh, failing in some ways, uh, not just because of the repression, but also because of these internal problems. Sure. Yeah. So in fact, chapter three of Global Civil War is dedicated to identifying what I term four quandaries of the global revolt, like four challenges. And the first one of those four is what you've just touched on, that we have this um, very, really tragic situation in which you have masses of people around the world who are organizing into powerful social movements, right, of every kind. And yet an organized socialist-oriented left is in many of these cases lacking. So you get spontaneous or even organized uprisings, but without an alternative project and an organized left that can give coherence and, and then replace what's overthrown, you just get, you know, you don't get any forward progress. The most tragic example of this was the, the one I use in that book, Global Civil Wars, is Egypt. You had the 2011 uprising of Ibn Mubarak dictatorship. Now, it wasn't spontaneous in the sense that social movements were organizing for years. The trade unions were organizing. So it's organized, but at the level of social movements and, and workers' organizations. And so they overthrow Mubarak. But because you don't have a socialist left and revolutionary parties linked to these you know, mass movements to say, OK, now we've overthrown the dictatorship. Here's an alternative political project, an alternative, you know, we're going to put our own people in government. Um, uh, then you simply have a new dictatorship a year later in, in, in Egypt. The other example I use is the Greek working class movement. But I don't want to go there for a moment. So that's the first big, you know, um, tragedy of this current moment that you have the mass social movements and worker organizations without just as you say an, an organized coherent um uh, left like we did in the 1930s um but i have and i'll be real brief about this but there are three other quandaries i mentioned one is the i already mentioned is the quandary that the left has to compete with the far right and the neo-fascist right in recruiting the same social base that's the second quandary a third quandary is that increasingly social movements, less in the United States, but in other countries, social movements and worker organizations are acknowledging that you have to start organizing across borders. You have to link up across borders. You need transnational coordination. Um, and that's been going on for quite some time. Of course, the World Social Forum founded, I think, 2001. Um, but that idea that we need to have a global project and a transnational coordination has been gaining ground, but it's still very much not not where it needs to be. So you still don't have transnational organizations and the level of transnational coordination of national struggles that we really need. That's the third quandary. And I'll just conclude without going into a lot of detail. And I know this is very controversial, but we need to confront this head on. In some of the countries, this is not true, for instance, in India or in the Philippines, but especially in the Western countries and especially ground zero, the United States, we have what I critique as the identitarian paradigm. That doesn't mean that we don't place front and center struggles against racism, against sexual repression, against women's oppression. They have to be front and center in our struggles. But the identitarian paradigm uh, is something else that I and many others have uh, 
critiqued, and that is a fourth quandary that in the Western countries that's also blocking more, you know, radical forms of struggle that can turn this global revolt into a real challenge to the system. Um, when you were saying that one of the quandaries is also fascism, I mean, that's certainly something that also existed in the 1930s. Uh, but I'm wondering what else is different you, uh, in, in this period. Uh, and uh, one of the things that you mentioned uh, was precisely the, the aspect of globalization, essentially, that, uh, that uh, the movements really need to link up globally uh, and uh, because of the global nature of capitalism uh, and, and the transnational co uh, capitalist class. So that's another one. Um, one that uh, I didn't hear you mention yet, but I, well, I, but I did see it in the book, which is the issue of digitalization. Uh, can you say a little bit about how that affects the re global revolt? Absolutely. So on the first one, so fascism is always, I've been writing about fascism since the, since, um, the 2008 collapse, and I remember I got invited at you know to several universities to talk about my theory of global capitalism. I brought up fascism as looked at by crazy everyone always fascism, and here we are on the doorsteps of fascism right here in the United States. But so fascism has always been um, a response to capitalist crisis. So in the 1930s, it was a response to the Great uh, Depression, and um, it is now in the 2020s. It's also fascist project is a response to this crisis that we are in. Um, the difference is, so in the 1930s, of course, we had in, in Germany, in Italy, in the United States, and all of the countries around the world, you had mass uprisings of the left and where fascism triumphed, its first job was to crush the left. And then its second job was to reactivate economic, uh, capital accumulation with a fascist state organizing. In the United States, you had, a, as you just pointed out, a mass fascist movement, but the mass popular struggle, socialists and communists, got the upper hand, linked up with reformist elites, and we had the New Deal outcome, the social welfare outcome. But you have the same thing now, right? That you have the left response and the fascist response to this crisis. But for me, the difference between the two fascisms is, just as you said, transnational capital. So for me, a fascist project currently would involve a triangulation of three things you need to actually consolidate a project. First, you need um, a um, repressive fascist power within the state itself, capturing the state. So you had that with Trump. He couldn't consummate it. He could come back. You have it with Bolsonaro. They're capturing the state and turning the state into a repressive, far-right, repressive apparatus of fascism. But that's not enough for fascism. That just means dictatorship or authoritarianism. The second and third thing, it has to triangulate. Secondly, you need a fascist mobilization in civil society. You have that, of course, with the Nazis. You have it right now in the United States, not just with Trump, the Trumpist movement, but the you know far-right militias, the QAnon, all of that. We're seeing a rapid fascist mobilization in civil society because fascism involves this mass base in civil society. And then the third of this triangular fascist project to succeed is capital. And in this case, it's not national capital. So German national capital at first did not support the Nazis. And then they said, okay, wait a second. Let's do that because the Nazis will crush the socialists and communists and the Nazis will subsidize and reactivate our own accumulation. So you had that triangulation. So now the missing link here, even when fascists take over the state or even when they're mobilizing in civil society, is transnational capital by and large is not on board with fascism. They're not the ruling classes and especially capitalist classes are not yet on board wanting to say, yes, we need fascism. And if 
the global revolt from below comes to really threaten the interests of transnational capital, oh, they will run over to fascism and link up. And that's our big uh, danger here, uh, of course. Um, so the second part of the question was the role of, of digitalization. So I was mentioning earlier that these new digital technologies allow new forms of social control and repression. So you probably would not see with a 21st century fascist project, even here in the United States, you wouldn't see concentration camps and, um, you know, and um, mass, mass murder of millions of people, because there are other mechanisms of fascist control, more selective repression with very tight control uh, through the digitalized um, police state. You would see a different, slightly different kind of, of fascist uh, repression and control. But the other thing I want to say about these um, digital technologies is that they are also there for the popular classes to use. So, so like digitalization is, is a weapon of the ruling groups. They've weaponized it literally and figuratively. The ruling groups have weaponized digitalization literally by applying it to global police state uh, and figuratively by, in, by, by incredible amount of increasing the power of through digital control, through digitalization. Um, but it's a double-edged sword for the ruling groups because the popular classes also used uh, digital social media and all of these digital mechanisms to, um, to, to unify, which is to um, organize. So which is no wonder the latest rebellion in the global revolt. Okay, we had Pan Panama a month ago, of course. I mean, I can mention 20 different countries where global revolt just in the last month, month and a half. But literally today and yesterday, the new, because it breaks out every country every day, is Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. A mass uprising as we speak in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And what is the first thing the state is? It um, cancels, like turns off the internet. Because the internet will now be used by the Sierra, Sierra Leonese people. Uh, to start coordinating the struggle. So, you know, this, the digitalization is is a, you know, a complex thing, which is not always in, in the control of uh, the ruling groups. And they know that. I want to turn a little bit uh, now to look a little bit towards the future. Now, you mentioned that the, uh, that the, the, the fascist tendency has severe problems, but then there's also the kind of, so to speak, enlightened upper class, uh, let's say, uh, the uh, transnational capital cl capitalist class that does not buy into fascism, that recognizes, as you say in your books, uh, recognizes the problem of inequality. And I would also say uh, it's not just inequality, I think it's also this uh, uh, potential for this um, insecurity, right? That's uh, driving a lot of uh, people's anxieties. Uh, it's not just, I mean, I think the tolerance for inequality actually in the US seems to be ridiculously high, but it's the insecurity that really gets to people. Um, and, um, but uh, so they re recognize this and therefore propose um, basically a new, uh, a new New Deal, a Green New Deal, uh, a, a post-Keynesian kind of uh, solution uh, to the problem or to the crisis. Uh, now, you question whether that's going to be a viable solution. Why? Yes. So, yeah, fantastic question and very important. And of course, I get in the, the book of, of these two books, the one that goes into a lot of detail on that is Can Global Capitalism Endure? So we were I was talking earlier, there is no glo unified global ruling class apart from their two elements of unity. And so there's they're very, very divided now. The, really, the global ruling classes are, are rudderless. They don't know how to resolve this crisis. But there is a reformist wing among the transnational elite. And these are reformers who recognize that you need to save capitalism from itself by radical restructuring and by a reform project. And they are 
there's wings of the ruling classes in all countries around the world that are thinking in these strategic terms. And of course, the World Economic Forum, although you still have plenty of neoliberals and neo-fascists in the World Economic Forum, but the bulk of the World Economic Forum is really the, the think tank for the reformist wing of the transnational capitalist class and, and its, their political agents in, in states. And so they've been arguing that if we don't have reform involving two dimensions, we're going down. Right. So so the two dimensions that they're pushing forward is redistribution and, you know, something like a new New Deal. Um, and and um, that involves global neo-Keynesianism. Um, and so there's this increasing talk about universal basic income, right, which is a form of redistribution and, and the ability of the masses of poor and working people to at least to consume something. Um, also, the G20 approved a cross-border tax a few years ago. I think it was two years ago, a 15%. So the idea is to a re-regulation, this time at a transnational level, transnational regulation of the global global markets and transnational redistributive mechanisms. So part of this reform project, those are the two big things, right? Redistribution and, and re-regulation of the global economy. And then there's, of course, the green economy that you mentioned, kind of a farce because it's not really a ecological viable model, uh, large-scale investment in public infrastructure. Of course, China leads the way with the Belts and Roads Initiative, but also in the U.S., $1.1 trillion was approved by Biden for massive public infra uh, investment in, in infrastructure. Um, there's also been around the world, not in the United States, but around the world, a sharp rise in social assistance programs led by Latin America, but it's really worldwide. There's like 40 or 50 countries that have had these significant social assistance uh, programs. So, and then, of course, you have the transnational elite inside the World Economic Forum, Forum calling for what they call they call global governance. For me, that's my theory of transnational state apparatuses. How does the ruling group coordinate national policy across borders? Uh, but all of this is the reform project. Now, in the um, Can Global Capitalism Endure book, I also mentioned the Hewlett Foundation. And this is very interesting because it's from Hewlett Packard. That's where their funding comes from. And they started a new program about two years ago, which is so significant. They're spending tens of millions of dollars to develop a post-neoliberal paradigm. So some of the transnational elite and capitalists just want neoliberalism on steroids. Don't touch it. We want that. But others are saying, no, we need a new paradigm that, again, that involves this redistribution and, and re-regulation. But here's the thing, Craig. Craig, Craig your, your key question is, why is this not going to resolve the problem? So first of all, it might resolve. It might. And that's what I predict in can global capitalism endure? It might bring about in the next few years a reactivation of the global economy, especially with the introduction of these digital technologies. It might or it might not, depending on how things play out. But even if it does, it wouldn't resolve these underlying contradictions. And I want to mention them, especially the ecological contradiction, especially because capitalism as a system has to constantly expand. It can't stop expanding. If it stops expanding, it collapses. It goes into stagnation. That's been the whole, that's the nature of capitalism. I, I give the example of like riding a bicycle. If you stop pedaling, the bicycle slows down and collapses. That's capitalism. So for 530 years now, literally 530 years in 1492, um, we've had outward expansion. There's constant waves of colonialism and imperialism bringing more and more countries, more and more people into the system. Now every country, Every community on the planet is integrated directly or indirectly into global capitalism. There's no room for uh, what I call extensive enlargement, outward expansion. I mean, there's no people on Mars or the moon to colonize. So that's it. 
no more extensive expansion. So the other mechanism that capitalism has to expand is what I call intensive expansion, meaning that you turn more and more sectors of society, more and more spheres of society into opportunities for accumulation. So that's been privatization, for instance. You privatize education and healthcare and public infrastructure. You're now privatizing nature. We're privatizing space exploration. All of this opens up new rounds of expansion, intensive, right? Not conquering new territories, but opening up new areas. Now, the ruling groups are hoping that, because that's a limit. You have a limit to intensive and extensive expansion and then chronic stagnation and worse, collapse. So the ruling groups are hoping, those those enlightened, right, um, uh, reformist ruling groups, that digitalization will allow a type of extensive expansion in the sense that you you get a tremendous boost in productivity. And that gives a new lease on life to growth because capitalism always has to grow. And that remains to be seen if that's actually going to take place. But there's a couple of things that you have to point out here. The first is ecological. We don't even need to discuss that because everyone knows it. But let's just remember that this is simply unprecedented. We're reaching the ecological limits to capitalist um, reproduction. And already it's not possible to reverse global warming. Now, the ruling groups are talking about containing the fallout from global warming, but there's no end in sight. I mean, this is the worst possible summer we're experiencing right now in the worldwide with, you know, heat waves. But Already, the prediction is within the next 10 years, by 2035, and that's in the book, the second of the two, there will be a billion climate refugees, right? Fleeing areas that are too hot to live in and fleeing areas that are totally desertified or fleeing areas that are totally flooded, right? These extremes. So a billion um, refugees is going to be, I mean, and there's social disintegration everywhere. You would really need this real, real radical reform like a new deal on steroids at a global level to prevent, you know, collapse and mass uh, chaos. So your question is, can the reformist project succeed? And what I'm predicting in the book, Can Global Capitalism Endure? Is that it may, if, because the reformists are a minority, if there's mass struggles that force, just like the mass struggles in the United States, forced FDR, right, Roosevelt and the New Deal to implement the New Deal. If mass struggles force the global elite, to have a radical reform project, you could see a reactivation of global capitalism for a time. But ultimately, those contradictions will come back, and especially the ecological dimension, which is why I predict in that book, my position is that we will not get to the end of this century, the 21st century, with capitalism. Either we overthrow capitalism by the end of this century, or there's a collapse of civilization. We're already in the sixth mass extinction. I'm not going to go into the ecological dimension. Everyone knows about it, but it's real. And that's a block that's blocking. I mean, that's with that in mind, we cannot see a recovery of world capitalism as we saw in the 1970s or the 1930s or the late 1800s. And anyway, anyway, when we talk about capitalism recovering, we're not talking about masses of people recovering, but the system. Uh, I've got a lot more to discuss there, but that's just some of it. I, I and we're going to conclude very soon. But one last point. Um, I mean, you basically outline. I, I would say, I, although I don't think you put it this way, but uh, there's kind of three. Uh, aside from the, the the alternatives that you see, which is you know either overcoming co- uh, capitalism or 
complete uh, calamity, really. Uh, but in terms of the projects that uh, that the uh, the transnational capitalist class and also the the ruling elites propose, there's on the one hand fascism, which we already discussed, and then there's kind of this enlightened capitalism. But there's a third one that is currently being applied, I would say, which is um, basically to um, and you mentioned it, um, which is uh, to to use the global police state as a new form of investment, as a new way of keeping uh, the system going. Uh, and we touched on this also earlier a little bit in terms of the conflicts uh, between uh, U.S. and China and U.S. and Russia. And as a matter of fact, you end uh, your book in a, on a not very optimistic tone. That is the can capitalism endure? You said, quote, uh, the Ukraine crisis is not the cause, but a consequence of the general crisis of global capitalism. That crisis will only get worse. Um, I just wonder if you could say a little more about um, what uh, what is driving exactly that kind of uh, interstate um, conflict uh, that we're facing right now, which seems quite serious, you know, especially with uh, Nancy Pelosi going to Taiwan and you know the possibility of also a nuclear uh, confrontation, and then the crisis with Russia and the Ukraine. Yeah, fantastic uh, question. Gosh, I'm going to try and keep it short. But yeah, there's, so there's three possible alternatives that, uh, in, a, in the big picture. And again, the, the global civil war is looking at maybe the next 10 years. The can global capitalism endure is looking to the 22nd century. Will we get there? Um, but yes, there's these three current alternatives on you know before us. One is a global fascism. A second is a global New Deal, whatever language you want to use for that. And a third is... Um, um, is um, global you know, socialism or post-capitalism. Those are the three things you know, in, in play here. But the point you're making is, is what I call militarized accumulation and accumulation by repression. Meaning that if we go back to how we started the interview, you have all of this overaccumulated capital. The transnational capitalist class is awash in all of this cash, doesn't know what to do with it, how to keep on making profits. We did discuss how they invest in financial speculation. That's one outlet. This other two big outlets that I've always identified, the second big outlet is debt-driven growth, meaning that global debt, meaning state debt, corporate debt, and especially private debt like just us individuals, credit cards and student loans, et cetera, uh, is 300, approaching $300 trillion, unprecedented. It can't, you cannot have continued debt-driven growth. You can't have continued financial speculation. Cryptocurrency markets is just, cryptocurrencies are just speculation, and they've just collapsed. So another big outlet for this overaccumulated capital is by investing in systems of warfare, social control, and repression. And so, you know, Ukraine, there's the geopolitical dimension to Ukraine. There's all of these different dimensions. We can get into all of it. But one big dimension to it is that it is a wonderful, incredible opportunity for the military-industrial complex, fused as it is with Silicon Valley and with the giant banks. So I wrote an article that's after these two books you know, were either published or were already in the press. But I wrote an article on on um, how you how the military industrial complex in the United States literally they said happy days are here again. That's the actual term of a big contractor. Happy days are here again, and that's why the the U.S. military is and NATO is gloating and saying this is going to be a prolonged war. So you pour billions of dollars of you know you accumulate capital by prolonging the Ukraine conflict and you know for 10 years 20 years now i want to go back to the us remember we were talking about us china competition or interstate competition and i was saying it's real 
It's extremely dangerous, but it's not explained by cap national corporations competing with one another. But let's look at Pelosi going, Pelosi going there. How do we explain that and the Chinese response? Part of the story there goes back to the crisis of legitimacy and to the political implications of that crisis of legitimacy. The midterm elections are coming up in the United States. Why did Pelosi decide to do that? Well, I think part of that story there is she wants to get credibility for the Democrats, you know, tough and Democrats. Um, and when this midterm elections are coming up, then it looks like the Republicans are going to do very good. Flip the other side of it. Of course, China has its nationalism and, you know, more long-term explanations for wanting to get Taiwan back and challenge the U.S. on it, but also the communist, the um, the five-year Communist Party um, uh, summit uh, Congress is coming up, and Xi Jinping has to get reelected for another five years. And so, both of these countries, you see, the leaders or parts of the state um, thinking about their internal political situation and their legitimacy, and then responding with international tension. That is part of the story. But here's what I'll conclude with, that as long as the global economy is ever more dependent for profit making and for accumulation on wars, on conflict, on repression, it will push us towards ever more dangerous heights, at which will eventually, if we don't pull back on that, spark World War III and disaster. Um, so that's not a, I don't want to end on such a, such a, you know, scary note, uh, because we are pushing back. But that is, you know, part of the story of international tension, geopolitical competition, warfare, conflict, is that it's unbelievably profitable at a time when there's stagnation in the global economy. OK, well, we're going to leave it there. Um, I was talking to. Um, oh, sorry to interrupt. So we don't leave it there. I just want to say both of these books are also hopeful. They look at that global revolt and place great hope in it. So it's not really that pessimistic either of the books. But sorry, I interrupted you. No, I, I agree. I think that's uh, that's really the key is the idea, the hope that is placed in uh, the possibility of an actual resistance uh, to these uh, very uh, scary tendencies that you've been describing. Um, so I definitely encourage people to pick up these uh, two books. Uh, Global Civil War uh, is one of them by PM Press, uh, published by PM Press, and the other one is Can Capitalism Endure, published by Clarity Press. I was speaking to the book's author, William Robinson, Professor of Sociology at the University of Santa Barbara. Thanks again, William, for having joined me today. Thank you so much for having me on. And thank you to our audience for tuning in to the analysis.news. If you like our video and videos and podcasts, please make sure that you visit the analysis.news website and make a donation there so we can continue providing the service. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and to, uh, to our podcast.